And I believe that Paul's aim in this letter is to encourage these men and women to be different. He wants them to stand out in this world. And last week we looked at one way Christians are to stand out. Through our fellowship. Our partnership in the cause of the gospel. And we looked last week at four aspects of healthy Christian fellowship. It's in Christ Jesus. It gives praise where praise is due. It develops genuine bonds of affection. And it longs for ever-deepening Christian maturity. The passage we looked at last week was really Paul's introduction to this letter. And now he launches into the main body. In these verses we're going to get a look at, we're going to look at together, we get a look at what makes Paul tick, what drives him as a person. We discover that Paul is a man of one passion. He's not chasing a dozen different goals. He's driven by one desire. He lives to see Jesus Christ exalted. Or we could have used the word honored or elevated. Paul wants to see Jesus lifted high in this world. He wants to see the cause of Jesus promoted. That's Paul's one passion. As we look at this, let's pray that it becomes our passion too. We're going to read from verse 12 of Philippians 1 down to verse 26. In the Church Bible, that's page 1178, and in the large print, 1823. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, Not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, This will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is God's word. And it breaks into two pretty clear halves. Living to see Christ exalted changes our attitude to the present. And then in the second half, living to see Christ exalted delivers us from anxiety about the future. So first of all, living to see Christ exalted changes our attitude to the present. As Paul writes this letter, he's in prison, probably in Rome, but we're not sure. And he doesn't go into detail about his circumstances in prison. Was the food good? Did he have Wi-Fi in his cell? He doesn't tell us. But he does mention chains. He may well have been chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. So there's no sense in which this is a pleasant situation for, Saul, for Paul. It's not fun. It's not where he would choose to be if he had the choice. And apparently the believers in Philippi have been worried about him. That's the implication here. They seem to have asked how he's doing. But instead of filling them in on the food and the Wi-Fi access and whatever else they may have expected to hear about, Look what Paul says in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. That's the response of a man who has only one passion. I don't believe Paul is putting this on for the Philippians. I don't think he's trying to appear super holy. No, they have asked how he is, and he tells them what to him really matters about his situation. It is serving to advance the gospel. When our one passion is Jesus Christ, that's what we'll think about. That's how we will assess our situation. Not how do these circumstances affect me personally, but how do they affect the gospel? And the key thing here is order of importance. Of course, Paul wouldn't have chosen to be in this situation. He wouldn't have chosen prison. He'd prefer not to be chained to a hairy soldier all the time. Paul is not a robot who has no personal feelings or preferences. But the key point is, in the order of priorities for Paul... In the list of what he's concerned about, his personal comfort or discomfort is pretty low down. When he's asked how he's doing, he doesn't think to mention those things. What he talks about is what he's passionate about. And that's his desire to see Christ exalted. So as we try and apply this to ourselves tonight... Let's not go away and think that we have to try to wipe out our emotions. That we have to try to stop caring what's going on in our lives. That would be weird. No one can live like that. 
But let's pray that we will care most about how our circumstances can contribute to the exaltation of Christ. We don't have to enjoy bad circumstances. But when our one passion is Christ, we'll ask, how can this be used to lift his name higher? And whenever we see that happening in our circumstances, or when we see an opportunity for it, we'll be able to handle the bad circumstances. Not love them, but handle them. And I think that for all of us, this is a process. It's something that can grow in our hearts as we ask God to make it grow in us. And then Paul gives us two pieces of evidence that his circumstances are advancing the gospel. He gives the first one in verse 13. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Apparently, there were about 9,000 soldiers in the palace guard. So even if the guards on duty changed a few times every day, it's unlikely Paul met all 9,000 of them personally. But no doubt he shared the good news with each one who came near him. Paul is the prisoner, but every day his guard was a captive audience. And I'm sure Paul must have made an impression on them. A prisoner who wasn't angry and who wasn't sitting around in self-pity was probably an unusual thing. They would have talked about Paul, which means they would have talked about his gospel message too. So from Paul's perspective, his circumstances are great for Jesus' fame. How else would the palace guard have heard about Jesus? How else would Paul have got to talk to these men? When our goal is exalting Christ, even difficult circumstances are opportunities. And you might be thinking, okay, I can see how that worked for Paul, but I can't see how it's going to work in my circumstances. How does my illness, for example, or how does my family crisis advance the gospel? Well, by themselves, those things probably don't. But how you react to those things can advance the gospel. I read recently about a Christian lady who was going through a crisis in her life. When this Christian's life had been going well, her non-Christian neighbor hadn't been open to talking to her. But when the crisis came along for this Christian lady, the neighbor actually approached her wanting to talk. This is what she said. I didn't give a blank about who God was to you in your happiness. But now that you're suffering, I want to know, who is your God? Where is he in your suffering? That non-Christian neighbor was actually dying of cancer herself. And she wanted to know from this Christian lady, is your God big enough for the bad times 
as well as the good times. That's how our bad circumstances can serve to advance the gospel. When all's going well for us, well, we would seem confident in God, wouldn't we? But when suffering comes and somehow we still trust him and still find a way to praise him, then people will want to know who this God is. Not everyone will want to know. Of course they won't. But someone will. And other Christians will be given confidence and courage. That's Paul's second piece of evidence that his chains are advancing the gospel in verse 14. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Our example can give boldness to others. He's talking here about Christian brothers and sisters who have heard about Paul's witness and who have been inspired by it. Last week, some of us were at a men's conference in Coventry and we were reminded what a difference it can make when one man sees another man living differently. Many of us have been impacted that way. I think I've spoken before about the impact it had on me as a boy to see my dad reading his Bible every single morning. And he didn't do it in front of me on purpose. My bedroom was in the loft of our house and I had to go through his study in order to get downstairs every morning. And I know that my boys watch me. And that frightens me most of the time. But we have to be aware we are being watched. We are being listened to. We might not like that, but we can't change it. It's the way things are. So let's be praying that our example gives others confidence in our Lord. Let's pray that our example gives others boldness to speak up for the Lord themselves. Over the course of months and years, we can't really fake an example for Christ. Over time, our one passion will become obvious, whatever it is for us. If it's having stuff, then that will become obvious. If it's promoting ourselves, then that will become obvious. If our one passion is having an easy life for ourselves, that will become obvious. And if our one passion is seeing Christ exalted, then that will become obvious. Verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. 
But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul is saying that even those who cause trouble for us may be used to bring honor to Christ. Part of what is stirred up by Paul's example is the envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition of some others. And it's not entirely clear what these people were trying to achieve. Are they trying to replace Paul somehow and gain prestige for themselves while he's out of the picture and locked away? Or are they trying to make his conditions in prison even worse by stirring up resentment against his gospel? It's hard to be sure what they're trying to do. But one thing is clear about these people. Although their motives are bad, their gospel is accurate. In other words, Paul is not talking here about false teaching. He wouldn't tolerate or applaud that for a second. No, these people have a message that is spot on. And so Paul says, what does it really matter if they succeed in their stupid little schemes to hurt me somehow? The other consequence of what they're doing is that the gospel is getting out. The gospel is spreading. And because of this, verse 18, I rejoice. Sometimes even those who cause trouble for you and me may be used to bring honor to Christ. That doesn't excuse their false motives. It doesn't excuse their wrongdoing. But if our one passion is living to see Christ exalted, then whenever that happens and however it happens, we'll somehow find a reason to rejoice. How many times has God used prickly, selfish, prideful people to somehow point others to Christ? And we might think that's not fair that he would use people like that. We might not find anything positive about that person. But if the cause of Christ somehow advances through him or her, in spite of their faults, we can rejoice in that, can't we? Even if we think the person himself is a disgrace. Or herself. So far, Paul has been speaking about his present circumstances. But now in our passage, he looks forward. What might the future hold for him? And in this second main section, he teaches us that living to see Christ exalted delivers us from anxiety about the future. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about these verses, Christ has delivered Paul from the tyranny of what might happen to him. It's easy for us to live under that tyranny. We might be made redundant. We might have a financial shortfall. We might not find a spouse. That test we've had might show up something bad. 
How many sleepless nights have we all had over what might happen? But Paul has been delivered from anxiety about the future. And again, let's be clear, it's not because he doesn't care about the future. He cares massively about it. But he's not anxious about it. Why? Because his one passion is Christ. And Paul knows that whatever happens, whether he lives on or whether he dies quite soon, he will have Christ. And the specific details of Paul's situation are that he's sitting there in prison facing a trial. And that trial may lead to his release or to his execution. Ongoing life or a pretty sudden death for him. On the face of it, surely that's worth a few sleepless nights. But look what he says at the end of verse 18. He said that he rejoices in his present circumstances, and then he says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now we might read that and think Paul is sure he's going to be acquitted and then released. But verse 20 shows us that is not the case. He says in verse 20, I eagerly await, expect, and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So he really does not know how his trial is going to turn out. It may lead to life or death. And so then, what does he mean in verse 19? I know what has happened will turn out for my deliverance. He's talking in verse 19 about his eternal salvation. Salvation would be a better translation here than deliverance. Paul does not know how this trial on earth is going to go for him. But he knows the trial in heaven is already over for him. The verdict is in on that particular trial. At the judgment seat of God, Paul has been acquitted. His sins are forgiven. His debt has been paid. There is no condemnation for Paul on that trial. Paul's salvation has been accomplished by Christ. And so whether he dies soon or later, the Spirit of Christ will enable Paul to persevere to the end. Because of Jesus, Paul will not be ashamed before God. Paul is not being cocky. He's not being presumptuous. He knows the importance of the Philippians' prayers for him still. He mentions their prayers in verse 19. He's not cocky, but he is confident in his salvation. He's confident in his salvation because he's confident in Christ. And so, Paul is delivered from the tyranny of what might happen to him. When it comes to his eternal future, 
Paul knows what's going to happen to him. And so he can face whatever happens between today and eternity. Then in the final verses of this passage, Paul discusses the particular possibilities for his future. Look at them again in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. I think we can sum up Paul's thinking like this. So long as this body is alive, we are useful for Christ. When this body dies, we will be with Christ. Either way, it's Christ all the time. Paul's personal desire is to be with Christ. But, he says in verse 22, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And then again in verse 24, it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul wants to be with Christ, and he also wants to be useful for Christ. And as Paul thinks about the needs of the Philippians, he becomes convinced God still has work for him to do here on earth. Living to see Christ exalted has delivered Paul from anxiety about the future. If the immediate future holds more prison or if it holds release, then Paul will serve Christ however he can. But if the immediate future holds execution, he'll be glad to be with Christ. Either way, he can't lose. None of us here know the precise details about our future. None of us know how many days or years we have left. We don't know what trials or blessings are going to come in that time. But when our one passion is Jesus Christ, then we are delivered from the tyranny of what might happen to us. To live is Christ and to die is gain. So the important things about our future are not uncertain for us. Our future is Christ, serving him, And then one day being with him. John Patton was a missionary in the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. He wrote this towards the end of his life. I have often been taunted with being a man of one idea. But is it not better to have one good idea and to live for that and succeed in it than to scatter one's life away on many things and leave a mark 
and none. John Patton's one idea was the same as Paul's. He lived to see Christ exalted. It's true that it can be dangerous to be a man or a woman of one idea. If that one idea is gaining power for ourselves or clinging on to our youth or having other people like us, if that's our one idea, then that one idea can destroy us. But when we live to see Christ exalted, we cannot fail. Our life will leave an eternal mark. And we cannot be disappointed by the future. Whatever it holds for us. Because our future is with Christ. We're going to respond to God's word as we sing together, Jesus, all for Jesus. Jesus.